0: You need to kind of raise your mental capacity to be able to recognize situations, recognize patterns, and react accordingly. And that ability, that process, that mental processing, whatever that is, comes with you got to think through it, you got to know what you're doing, and then just need to get reps and reps and reps through that.
1: Welcome to Slapping Glass where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome current forward for Capuscoa basket in Spain's ACB, Mike Carlson. Mike is here today to discuss an article he wrote on what leads to disconnect between players and coaches, creating great angles and space when setting on ball screens, creating pick and roll synergy with guards and we return to overrated or underrated to talk siestas analytics and the mic and drill we're excited to have recently launched slapping glass plus our premium learning and coaching hub consisting of slapping glass tv the sunday morning newsletter monthly coaching clinics q and a's and access to our private coaches corner community for more information please visit slappingglass.com we hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Mike Carlson. We're going to dive into a lot of stuff today, tactically, you know, defending pick and rolls, playing the pick and roll, all kinds of fun tactical stuff. But before we do, wanted to start with something that you wrote about the disconnect between coaches and players and teaching the game and learning the game. And it was it's really well written. There's a lot of great thoughts. So we want to dive into that first. And so I guess I want to start by bouncing it to you, Mike, and what it is that you see is the disconnect between a coach's knowledge, what they know about the game, and then how it gets transferred to players and how they can, you know, perform after that transfer.
0: As I say, in in the piece, you know, all the coaches want PlayStation controller and they want to move all the guys to where they should properly be and make the right reads and do this and players they want to go, they want to play. You know, they don't want to feel so restricted by the sets or the movements. I think the, the main idea after giving it a bunch of thought is in my opinion, players need to raise their level of IQ and their understanding of, in essence, the metagame of basketball, of, of what are the right reads, what are the proper techniques or proper ways to do things. Because in some sense, it feels like guys watch NBA and they're like, I want to learn how to do that move, or I want to be athletic and you know do that. And that's an awesome part of the NBA. That's why the NBA is the NBA, because they do have those spectacular athletes and they put on a show. But at the same time, there's that whole, like, the why behind the how of, of what they're doing. And, and there's enough resources out there for guys like us who just love basketball. And I think especially for young players, like, guys are playing 2K more than ever. And their basic understanding of the game is coming up, but that's only with the basketball. A lot of the times you're not going to have the ball. And so when you're getting into pick and roll, when you're defending a pick and roll, to be able to read and react to those situations properly in real time is what I think players need to up their level because they have the resources now.
1: In your mind, what are the things that maybe coaches and players kind of waste their time on in trying to learn the game and what could be done better?
0: It's tough for me to say from a coaching perspective. So I'll just talk from a player's perspective, but I felt I was over-preparing for a lot of games. So you need to kind of Raise your mental capacity to be able to recognize situations, recognize patterns, and react accordingly. And that ability, that process, that mental processing, whatever that is, comes with you got to think through it. You got to know what you're doing. You need to understand the strategy behind basketball of what the offense is trying to do or how you want to attack the defense. And then you need, just need to get reps and reps and reps through that. But increasing that mental capacity, I think is fundamental in being able to read and react properly and accordingly. So like as a player, like when I get into a game, if I'm overthinking like, oh, if they put this guy in the corner and this guy here, you know, they're going to do this set and do this. If I have, I have to process all that, you don't have enough time. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it's an impossible thing to do. It's not like football. It's not where, you know, there's a down and there's a distance and they're going to put three guys here and you know what idea they're going to run and, and you can process all that because the game's just too quick. So you have to have a basic understanding of like basic strategy. And I use the blackjack example all the time because if you guys have been in a casino, you're sitting mm-hmm. at a table with five people and there's one person that is new to the game or doesn't really know how to play. They can screw up the whole game for everybody by taking, you know, if the dealer's showing a five, they're going to hit when they don't need to. Or something like that. So understanding that basic strategy behind basketball through resources like your podcast or other podcasts, other YouTube videos, then processing all that information for your own game. And then being able to do those things on the court is kind of like the hierarchy of ideas. So understanding that basic strategy, working on your skills to be able to do all those different things. And then getting reps and finding a technique, finding a strategy that works for you as a player, because at some point, you know, you're going to be like, Oh, I saw this guy do it this way. And it's like, yeah, but you know, he's six inches taller than you and can jump out of the gym. Like you're not going to be able to do it that way. It takes practice. It takes yep. refinement, but you got to increase your knowledge base and you got to increase that cognitive ability to react
2: properly. Yeah. Mike, just for reference, and I think it'd be valuable for coaches to hear or some of the things that you were doing outside of your reps and your skill work to increase your basic understanding of the game that maybe coaches can gleam and could apply to their teams?
0: The biggest thing for me was just conversations. I think it really started to turn around when I would go into my assistant coach and I was like, hey, let's watch a half of these guys together before we play. And it actually started because we were playing a team that I played for And the coach called me in and was like, hey, can you kind of explain what's going on here? Explain some of the sets. And so we did that. We just watched a half. It took 30, 40 minutes. It was just watching basketball, really, and then just talking through it. And then I was like, hey, do you think I could do this if they were on this set? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Does this idea fit within our rules as a system? You know, because I think maybe college is a little bit different. And Dan, you can probably speak to this, but I always tell the people the difference between defense in the pros and defense in college is where college is like, you have your job, you're going to follow your rules. And that's how we're going to be successful playing team defense. Whereas in the pros, it's like you have your scheme, but you need to do your job and then also help other guys do their job as best you can in sense of like stunting or little helps here or you know, taking away this passing lane or buying some time on the shot clock, you know, it's like, it's more dynamic. Whereas like, I feel like college is doing your job. Dan, can you speak to that at all? Being a college coach?
1: Well, I could speak to guys not doing their job or other guys' jobs. <laughs> <for> sure. <laughs> That's fair too. <laughs> but I, I think what you're saying and what I would agree with is there's another level. And obviously at the professional level of just thought behind the defensive schemes as well. Yeah.
0: And that gets back to the different kinds of techniques. So like, we'll say a switch, for example, last year, when I played in Italy, it was like, Mike, we're switching everything with the four. And it was just kind of like, this is how it's going to be Figure it out. Okay. Part of my responsibility is like, I'm not going to sit there and have an argument with somebody about like why we shouldn't switch or why we should run this. That's not my job. My job is to play but it was one of those things where it's like okay I need to be aware on the scouting report more aware of the tendencies of these guards and what moves they like to go to and how they like to play off the dribble or how they want to attack the switch that kind of thing and then I also needed a couple of different techniques of how to switch in order to take away some advantages because if you just if you're two steps back from your guy and you switch, and then the guard backs up, and he's coming at you with a head of steam. Like good night, like you're either going to get a foul, or he's going to get a layup, or something like that. So it became, you know, one of the techniques that I learned over here in Spain was called a show switch, where you basically show really aggressively, but you're going to stay with that guy, and it's going to be a switch. So you know, you're with your man, and you show super aggressive, not to get split or anything, but just to make that guy back up. And then you're with him, you're in the switch and it might buy you that extra two or three seconds late shot clock to be able to force him into a tougher shot than he would want. And it will help you, you know, not let him get that head of seam so he can just attack you and draw a foul or whatever. So part of it, you know, is definitely, Hey, I, I need to know the scheme and what we're doing. And then the other part of it is having a couple different techniques to be able to do things differently. Cause if I show switch the entire game. They're going to figure it out. You know what I'm saying? And, and that guard's going to rip me apart probably in the last three minutes of the game when the game's on the line. So I need to do it at the right time, kind of in the sense of the game, to be able to gain an advantage. That's the game. That's any game you play, you know, having that kind of gamesmanship, that mentality of like, I know I have the capability to do this on offense or defense, and then choosing to do it at the right time, which I think kind of fits in with everything that we're talking about.
1: Mike, we've hinted at it a couple of times in here about pick and roll coverages on both sides of the ball, but we'd like to kind of dive in a little deeper now. Awesome. And starting with the offensive side of the ball, love to hear your thoughts on how you've continued to develop as a pick and roll guy, as a pick and pop guy, or short roll as well, just that area of the game for you.
0: Well, I think the biggest thing has been going back to like the basic strategy of basketball is understanding what options I have available when I set a screen. And then if you want to go a step further, what options have I available, depending on what defense they do and depending on on where the screen is set. So being able to make those reads in real time, understanding where I want to get to on the floor. As to where I can be effective. For example, if I set a wing screen and that corner is open, I'm going deep pop, like touch and I'm sprinting as far as I can away from where the ball is because I want to create as much distance between my guy and me, one, to get free for a shot and two, to make that close out just a night nice so I can attack one-on-one. Or if I'm in the middle and then I know, hey, I can pick and stay at the 3 point line if they're doing some weird coverage but I know I'm most effective if I catch the ball right in the free throw line area because I got guys in the corners, I got cutters and I know I have the ability there I can shoot, I can take it to the hole in one dribble or I can make a good pass. As kind of time has gone on, I've just become more comfortable reading those situations and then even before that, it's like hey, what do I need to do before I set the screen? In order to create this advantage, because obviously teams know I want to pick and pop and find my spot on the three point line. So they're going to be ready for that. And then to be able to counter it or to put them in a bad position to do it, to somehow try to find a way to punish them, that's been kind of the next step. So you got, you know, if you want to break it down, it's like, okay, these are my options, depending on where I'm at on the floor and where the other guys are. The second thing would be, hey, these are all the different things that I can do in this situation. And then the third thing would be, how do I manipulate the defense in a way to get myself in a position so I can do one of the first two things and make them pay on whatever defense yeah. they do it?
2: All right, Mike, a lot of great stuff there. I think me and Dan are just ready to start firing them at you. Yeah, I guess if we start maybe pre-screen, when you know you're going to be setting a screen, what are you trying to do with your defender going into that screen? I'm trying to create
0: space. Simply put, if I can create separation between him and I... It just makes it that much harder to defend. That's kind of the way I think about it. It's like, what is the most difficult thing for me to defend? And then I'll try to do that on offense. Because if I can create space before I set the screen, and like if they're doing a one-step show or something to kind of defend the pop a little bit more, now they're susceptible to a slip. Or now Mm -hmm. they're susceptible to even a roll, given the right position and circumstances. But definitely creating that space before the screen... I think is the easiest
2: way to give yourself the time to read how to attack it. What are some of the things that, is it just like a start stop or is it just like sprinting? How are you trying to create that space? Usually it depends. So yeah, (laughs) that'll be the answer for a lot of these. So
1: we're we're familiar with that phrase on this show. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So uh, on transition screens, for example, I want my man to I think I'm either run into the hole or run into the corner and then I'm going to, you know, make him either get deep and then I'll go set the screen. And even then, in that case, that's not entirely accurate because if my guy's going to hug me and that guard's bringing the ball down, like and I can set a screen underneath the three point line and with this guy hugging me, like it's over because that guard, you know, if he has to go under, it's so deep and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So in, in that case, like I almost want the contact. But let's take diamond action, for example. A lot of teams run this where guard comes out, and then I have to come from the opposite block or even the same side block. It doesn't matter, but I have to arrive to that wing ball screen. I can do it quick, so like even before that guy has the ball, I'm going to be there to set that screen. Or I can kind of fake, like I'm going to go set a cross screen, or I'm just going to flare out to the corner or do something, just a wrinkle to make that defender have to adjust to what i'm doing but also like that needs to be taken with the context of whatever set we're running for example if the the play is for a big man well then it doesn't really matter so i need to get there quickly and if i'm not able to create that separation no big deal right but because that play is not for me it's more important that we get the spacing right for when the ball goes into the big man so it's not perfect, but just as a general idea of being able to create that space either with a forearm to the chest and push off them. Like I said, like I mentioned earlier, like being physical and seeing what you can get away with, I think goes, goes a long way. And if the ref, you know, if you guys score and the ref goes, hey, cut that out, you know, well, you still got a bucket.
1: Mike, one of the things I've always found difficult to teach at the college level for guys that I'm teaching to set on ball screens is how to read when to flip a screen late to give the offensive ball hander an advantage so you're sprinting out and you're going to set maybe a closed ball screen but then when you should flip your angle and change it so that the ball hander can go off the other way for you what's the read on that when do you flip your angle of your screen late and what are you looking at on the defensive side
0: i would say my read would be two things i would say the first, the obvious answer would be where the other two guys are, so if we have a, a strong side and weak side. and there's one guy on one corner, and then on the other side you got a wing in a corner, it's like I want to set the screen with my butt toward the two guys because then I have space to pop to that one. The side with the guy in the corner. I think the other thing would be too if they're gonna switch, because if they're gonna switch, that guard is kind of doing one of these, you know, looking back before that screen is coming. In that case, it doesn't really matter. But I think too, another important thing here is the angle of that screen. The specific case you're talking about is I'm arriving from the block or from somewhere near the baseline and it's gonna be a large distance to get to that screen. Whereas like on a normal wing screen or something, I would wanna be with my feet kind of straddling the three point line. Whereas in this case, I wanna have like a 45 degree angle to create that wider space because especially if they're going to switch I want my guard getting downhill and attacking the big with a head of steam. So I really got I got to clean up the guard on the screen. If they are going to switch, if that guard is looking for me when that screen is coming, that's a great time to switch the angle because he's going to adjust his feet or he's going to turn and like make contact with me. Cuz if you can reject a screen, whenever you want to reject a screen, like rejecting the screen is always good. And so if I'm coming up and I know that guy's looking and we can get him slipping that way because then even if he it's not a great switch, I don't need to set a good screen in that case because if I flip the angle and the guard comes off the screen so he doesn't reject it, he comes off of me. Now he's going downhill and I just touch that little guard and then I sprint and fill the other lane like in, on the other side of the paint where that guy's attacking, like the advantage is just huge.
1: When you go into to screen the ball. Are you looking at the defender's feet and where you're gonna set the angle of your screen, or are you reading your offensive player where he's at? Like what are you looking at to decide how you should shift your body to set a good screen for the ball handler?
0: I would say more of position on the floor than anything of like okay. of like where I'm gonna set that screen. I mean it's kind of a general rule if the guard is spaced deep from the three point line you can kind of, you don't have to set like necessarily a a flat back screen, but kind of creating that like 45 degree angle that we were talking about is really effective because that is a head of steam going and he's able to attack from that more. Whereas like, like let's say if I'm coming up, you know, to set that wing screen, for example, I know I'm going to pop. I angle myself so that pop is going to be quicker and and more efficient to be able to generate more space after the action. So it's, it's part of where it is, and it's part of what I want to do afterwards as well.
1: Okay. How do you not set any illegal or get an offensive foul in your screens?
0: I think, you know, a good screen, I think you got to change your definition of a good screen because a, a lot of guys think, you know, and I even mentioned it before, like be physical, like, uh, you know, all that rah, rah, rah stuff. But at the same time, too, a good screen can be you just touch the guy and go. So you don't even really have to, to screen them all that much. And if you know, they're going to switch, like with me, they switch a lot. So having that, the slip in there, having that, it prevents guys from like running into you, whereas, you know, if I'm kind of a stiff and I'm like, just plodding out there real slow to set the screen, my guard might get impatient, my guard, you know, and he might leave early and then I'm still moving when the screen comes, whereas like I'm so active in getting to the screen and then getting out of there because I believe that's, what's going to create the best advantage. Then it allows me to either make little contact or avoid the contact altogether. So I can kind of avoid those, those illegal screens.
1: Do you guys work on that? Mike in practice, like not like the point where you don't set any illegal screen,
0: not in like a breakdown drill or anything, but I talk about it with my guards and they get a feel for how I want to play or like how I want to do it. Or if I'm going to flip the screen, because I think, you know, it's kind of like to bring another basketball example, that might be a stretch of a connection, but I'm going to try here. If you throw a really good pass to somebody, but you throw it way too hard, it's not a good pass. It might be the right read. It might be the right play, but you didn't execute it well. So as a screener, I need to, make it so obvious what i want to do for my guard that there's no confusion and there's no this and there's no that and we can we can execute the play properly so i'm not throwing something at him
2: that he's not really ready for Mike, you briefly just mentioned it but how do you work on the synergy between yourself and the guards what are the conversations you're having or what are maybe the verbal cues that you're giving or you're reading off of your guard to like you said maybe change the angle or maybe I got to touch and go. I got to hold a screen. How do you develop synergy?
0: If both guys have a good IQ, it's a lot easier to create that synergy and to make that connection. So that kind of goes back to the whole theory of this, where players got to kind of up their level of what they want to do and really, really good players. They have the IQ down, but then they have the things that they want to do and the things that they're good at. At my position at the four, it's how can I help those guys get into those positions to be successful And what can I aid them and bring to them? So like a lot of the time in the beginning of the year, I just ask a bunch of questions. The goal is like, hey man, like how do you want to do this? How do you want to attack this? What's your ideas here? Just to get a feel for how they read the game and how they see the game. And then I can adjust what I'm doing based on that. And then once I kind of have that trust from them where they're like, okay, Mike knows how to play. Mike knows the game. Then it's kind of like, okay, hey man, I was thinking about we could do this, we could do that and throwing some of my ideas out there. But I think at the beginning of the year, I've always been of the mindset of, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions and show that I can play and show the kind of worker that I am essentially. And between those things, it's always been pretty easy to create that synergy and and to get the trust of those guys. And then to basically problem solve together in, in essence, whereas, hey, how do you want to attack this situation? What do you want to do here? But yeah, definitely asking questions right away, especially when you you know it's a bunch of new guys early in the year. So you got to figure each other out somehow. And, and always being the guy to ask questions yeah. lets them know I'm seeing the game in a way that – and I want to help them and that helps them build trust in me. And then if I become a good option for them – Based on my reads and based on my positioning, it just helps with everything.
2: Mike, can I throw a a situation at you? Because I mean, I like the touch and go, but Mm -hmm. you know, I know there's times where you should hold a screen. So I guess in your experience, what is the defense usually doing that maybe you should hold the screen? And what do your guard tendencies that kind of tell you, like, I should hold the screen because my guard likes to do this, this, or what is kind of the situation that, that plays out?
0: Honestly, one of the biggest ones is if we're in the bonus or not.
2: Because
0: if that guy can get ahead of steam, or if that guy's really good going to one hand or the other, I'm gonna make sure I stick that guy so he can get going downhill and and have an advantage. I think having the ability to like this is kind of an underrated thing, but having the ability where that defender isn't sure if he's gonna get stuck or if he needs to chase you because you're gonna slip, or if you're gonna you know put him in the post if they switch like. If that defender can't get a good read on what you're going to do, it's so much harder for him to adjust to what's going on, which will create an advantage for your guard. But I think, really, man, it's just in transition screens, anything going downhill. Okay. If you got a good one on one player getting to the rim, where especially in the bonus, you really got to stick those screens. And to even paint a bigger picture and to connect it back, if sticking that screen is going to create the most distance, between all the defenders and the basketball, like that's the best read then to get that guard with speed in space to make a play. That's a lot of feel. That's a lot of trial and error. And, you know, I even find myself sometimes like getting too stuck on screen. Sometimes it's a right read. It's a right thing. That's one of those questions where it's really trial and error.
1: Mike, do any of your reads or any of these angles or actions change when it's now a DHO, a dribble handoff or a handoff, as opposed to an on-ball?
0: Yes. DHOs are interesting because I don't really like them as a player. I much prefer to do a little pitch and then screen. Okay. Because I think what that does is, I mean, a lot of guys over here, I had so many turnovers my rookie year, just going to dribble handoff and like these dudes just come flying through and just blow that thing up and the ball's going the other way. It just became so much easier just to give that guy a little pitch and then really set a good screen or slip or do whatever I'm going to do. That's how I approach it. That's what I like to do. That's one thing that I found that works for me. It gives me the best advantage, especially like I always tell guys too. It's like, if Hey, if I pitch it to you, And that guard is coming up and he's like really defending. He knows the action is coming. Just rip and go baseline, rip and go. You're going to get a foul. You're going to create, because my guy's right with me. Your guy's trying to get Mm -hmm. through this screen. And I was like, that's just a great time to stop and just rip and go baseline immediately or get a backdoor or something like that. Yeah, no, DHOs are interesting because if I know they're going to switch, if I know they're going to switch, that's pretty much the only time where I will do an actual handoff. Okay. Because that gives me an option where I can do a keeper and attack the basket, or I can just spin and seal the guard on me. And then we got it in the post and I can back them down and make a play out of that. Cause that's going to put pressure on the defense.
1: Mike, what's your read then on the keeper? Are you feeling your man hedge out towards the ball handler? Or when are you deciding to keep it and go? If there's
0: space between the defenders, if there's enough space. And so I should say the read before that is if I do a dribble handoff, or if I do a pitch and pick, I want to get both my feet underneath the three-point line. I think that's crucial to it because that guy can come off with speed. If they go under, that's a shot. It's really tough to defend if you get both your feet under the three-point line. And for the keeper, it puts you one dribble away from a layup, two if you need it, but really you're one dribble away. But my read is if there's enough distance between my guy and the defender of the guard where I think I can sneak through there. I'm not right all the time, but if I do that in the first quarter, I get a foul or, you know, they're aware of it the rest of the game. Like, oh, he's looking for that. And then that's going to open up other things in that action too. So I think even if it's kind of a small space between them and I think I might be able to squeeze through there, like I'll just, I'll go for it just to put that pressure on him, especially early in the game, because I want the defense thinking, we don't know what he's going to do. You know,
2: he's not just going to do a simple dribble handoff or just this, because that's the action he's supposed to do. You know, Mike, and again, reference kind of your article you wrote, you know, you talked about hedging or, you know, trying to show Mm -hmm. out on a pick and roll. So I guess before we kind of start of how you approach it and your techniques, when you're hedging out, what are sort of the pitfalls that you got to be aware of that can obviously make this coverage turn it into a disaster?
0: One would be fouling. If you just, you know, cause I think especially the, a lot of guards just want to attack that high leg and just, you know, draw that foul. And really in a selfish way, if I get two of those in the first quarter, like I'm on the bench, the rest of the half. And it's just like, we're not helping anybody do anything. So with that being said, you got to be aware of fouling. Then you got to be aware of getting split. And then other than that, then you got to somehow find a way to make that pass. You got to trust your help defense, but as best you can, if I can show one step or two steps, maybe get a deflection, maybe get a touch on the basketball and blow that play up like that's great defense, but I got to make it so my help guys don't have to come all the way into the lane to stop the roll, man. And then that skip over the top to the corner is so difficult to defend. And I would always say if you're going to show, like a show is an aggressive defense. And if you're not going early and if you're not being super aggressive with it and trust in your help, then you shouldn't do it because it's not going to work. The only thing you're going to do is you got to make that guard take one or two dribbles backwards be disruptive and then bust your butt to get back in the play and get back into position.
1: Mike, what are some of the things that can happen before a screen or before you're trying to hedge that make it really difficult for you to get to that coverage on time?
0: You know, we talked about it on the offensive end where if that guy can create the separation between you and him, you're so much more susceptible to get either the big man slips to the basket, the little guy is going to split you or it can just go wrong a bunch of different ways. So maintaining that contact with the attacking player, with the guy that's at the screen, I think makes just a huge difference. And, you know, that's kind of where we get on the borderline again of like, where's the line between being physical and, and fouling? If I know this guy is going to go, like let's bring it back to the diamond action again, where he's going to come from the baseline or from the weak side all the way to set that screen. It's like, hey, I'd put my, one of my hands around his hip on those first two steps to slow him down. And I can kind of pull him back and stay with him to be able to defend that action just a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm connected with him and that show there's zero chance of being split and that guard will have to take a higher path to get around me. So he can't just beat me to the outside with speed. You know, I'm either getting a foul or, or we're at a disadvantage. So, but maintaining that contact and, you know, finding at what level you can essentially cheat to be able to do that will it will
2: defend that action very well. Mike, can you just kind of speak on to the importance of trying to push your guy like off where they want to set that screen, you know, trying to move where the screen's being set. So I'm not the strongest guy in the world. A preface is
0: by this. I remember they were trying to be like, you got to move the screen. You got to move the screen. I'm like, I can't move these dudes if they don't want to be moved. It's just, I, I don't know what you want me to do here, coach. It's just, is I'm not, I'm going to hit the weight room, but it's not going to happen that quickly. What one of the guys said to me on my team was like, as the guys are running to set the screen, it's so much easier to move a guy or to move. So if you're maintaining that contact with him and he's going to set that screen, you just put your hand on his hip. It's not going to look like a foul and you just push him a step or two higher. He's not setting the screen where he wants to. The offense is kind of out of sync and out of sorts. And he's frustrated because he's getting pushed and the refs aren't calling it. It just allows you to change the situation to make it easier to defend rather than like being worried about being low and being in the right spot and having good hands and like doing all this, which is proper technique and like fundamentally sound and like all great in that. But it's like, hey, if I can manipulate the situation a little bit better to make it easier to defend, which in this case means setting that screen a little bit higher, I'm going to do that because... I don't have to make a great show and, and I'm not going to screw my team by, you know, or get a foul or do any of that and just help myself and help my team. And be, we're off to defend the next action. But yeah, no. So so to answer your question directly, it's you got to move the guy when he's moving, because if he's still and you're trying to jam him and you're, you're just going to get a foul and it's going to look stupid. And if you're
1: weak like me, it's just yeah. it's not
0: it's not going to be easy.
1: <laughs> Mike, after you hedge and your responsibility is to hedge and then recover back what are your thoughts on getting back to your man? What are you thinking defensively after you have to take yourself a little bit out of the play to hedge and then you've got to get back and try to get good defensive position after that? What is your technique and what are you thinking about in that instance? The
0: first thing you you have to say is if I can get a hand on the ball, that's great. Then it's over. Then the play's over. If I can get it a fly, I don't got to get a steal, I don't got to do anything but if I can just slap that ball and make the guard go get it, we're golden. After that, it becomes You got to kind of play the percentages and take a good angle my percentage would be hey we're going to give this kind of like the pass over the top if i have my hands up and that guard is able to like sneak that ball in there and the big lays it up i'm okay if they score like that you know what i'm saying like i'm okay with that if they do it three times i'm not okay with it but you know i'm not okay with him throwing a bounce pass around that's just easy for a layup or a direct pass Or anything like that. But if he has to float one over the top, I can live with that. So it really becomes after I hedge, if I'm not able to touch the ball and and get a deflection, I need to kind of read where the ball is and just take a good angle to recover. And this also, you know, you got to understand this is the basic understanding of basketball, where it's like, if you take me, for example, I know after this, after a show, it's very likely they swing the basketball, and the big man's going to go post up, right? Right. So I need to be fully ready to take a good angle to be ready to front and to be ready to deny that pass and just take that away from him. Because if I go behind and I'm one on one in the post, and he gets deep position, like I'm not going to be able to stop that guy too well. It becomes that's my read on it. Whereas like other guys who are bigger, who are longer, they don't need to have that sense of urgency or that attention to detail because they're so big they can just take up all that space and and cause problems and it's not really going to be an issue but so i try to take after the hedge if i don't get a deflection i take a good angle back and i want to be on the high side of my guy unless he's of course the counter to that as an offensive player would then be to to hit me you know higher so he he comes looking for me and then you can kind of, you know, if they swing, then he's got all that. If he hits me near the free throw line or somewhere in, kind of in the middle of the paint, then he's got all the baselines to have that space to catch and score. So I got to be aware of the, where the ball is and kind of read the big guy as well, because if it's like he'll get antsy, he wants to score. So he'll kind of show me where the ball is, if it gets swung to the wing or if it gets swung to the, the weak side corner, because I, I have no idea, you know. So being able yeah. to read that and then knowing that I want to take away any post entry is basically the thought process.
1: My, This has been awesome. Thank you for yeah. your thoughts on all this stuff. It's really, oh, this really good fun. stuff. I'm, I'm enjoying this, man. I like talking hoops with you guys. This is good. Thank you. We do want to transition now to our overrated or underrated segment with you. And so, you know, we've got a, a, some, some fun ones, some basketball ones thrown in here. And so, you know, I know you know, The drill, but basically we'll give you the term, tell if it's overrated or underrated, and then we can have a little discussion around it. Send it, let's go. So to start, a a fun one for (laughs) you. I know you've been living in Spain now for about five years. We talked about before, overrated or underrated the Spanish nap culture or siestas in Spain.
0: (laughs) Underrated, 100%. (laughs) Underrated. People do not appreciate... What they got going on over here. So, okay. So hang on. I'll, I'll answer it with this too. Cause this might change your guys' perspective because I think as Americans, our philosophy is like, why aren't you at work? Why are you taking a nap? You're lazy. But the way the scheduling is over here is that little break in the middle of the day is so uh, everyone can go pick up their kids from school and go eat lunch with their kids. Pretty cool. Pretty yeah. underrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely. So do you take a daily nap? Uh,
0: No, not, not really anymore. I, I prefer to get all my sleep in at night and just kind of stay with the set sleep schedule. If I do sleep, it won't be for longer than
2: 20, 30 minutes. And then I'm, I'm back at it. Just to follow up, I mean, we're on schedules. What is kind of like a a daily practice schedule? Let's say midweek. We either like we got
0: the days we got one or you got two. So we usually go uh, either nine 30 or 10. And then if we go in the evening, it'll be around five. I wake up early. I'm an early morning guy because if we do have two practices, the later one will be lifting and, and shooting, and the earlier one will be basketball. So if I'm doing if we're doing the team stuff, the basketball work early in the morning, like I need to be all there and all ready to go. So we got a nine thirty practice. Mm-hmm. I usually like to show up, you know, eight forty five nine, and get my work in. So that means I'm usually waking up at seven six forty five seven, and making sure I get a good breakfast. and And then yeah, between them, we we eat lunch at around one that's nap time right after lunch and then get some coffee in me and get ready to go for the afternoon.
2: Okay. All right, Mike overrated or underrated the mic and drill <sighs> overrated. Got to go overrated. <laughs> I'm going to make a lot of my
0: old coaches upset with that one, but no, I got to go overrated because I think if you're just, you know, it, it depends how you do it, right? Like the money's in, in the details. So I think to start to warm up, you do it for a minute or minute and a half or whatever. And you do like, inside hand, outside hand, reverse, whatever, and you, you know, make a rule, like it can't touch the square and you throw some variations in there to, to work on your touch. And we're going to, I think it's great. But if you're just like, you know, I've seen, I I had to suffer through high school of, okay, we're going to do mic and drills for this amount of time. And it just, did nothing for anybody. So, uh, <laughs> I would, I would go with the overrated, but you know, with the, with the, after.
1: Mike, you know, you see a lot now with trainers and I know actually I've done it with sometimes with like working on ball handling, but we used to do it sometimes with our posts of using something other than a basketball to warm up with, like trying to catch a tennis ball right. for working on hand eye coordination or something else. Do you do any of that?
0: Yeah, no, that's because like I saw Formula One drivers doing that before they get, they race and to get their reflexes up and, you know, I'm not juggling for 10 minutes. I might do it for 30 seconds and I do it here in in my room. I don't do it on the court, but yeah, any type of overload, any type of sensory overload like that. Ah, uh, where you can introduce a couple foreign objects and you got to react to them, I think is super beneficial. But like, what, you can obviously get carried away with it, you know. But by and large, to to yeah. wake up those parts of your brain and to get your hands active and to increase reaction and and hand eye, I think it's great.
1: Are you juggling fire knives? What are you juggling <laughs> yeah. at the house? Chainsaws. You name it, I'll juggle it, man. That's <laughs> that's how it works over here. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So, all right, uh, Mike. Overrated, underrated. not
0: a stats guy. So I'm going to go, but I, you know, I am a math guy, so it's kind of weird. Like when it comes to basketball, I am, I am all feel and all, I'm all about the human element and the human factor, but I do understand the value behind the math behind the game. And, and, you know, the way the NBA is trending with the, you know, it's three or key. I would say, is it overrated or underrated? If I have to pick one, I'll go, I'll go underrated. Because I think I think it's going to only show what's really possible. And it's really shaped the game in the last five or six years. And then, you know, what are we going to see in the next 10 years? I think it's only going to grow from there.
1: Pat and I were talking beforehand, and it's an interesting question for us to hear your answer, because on one side is coaches and the outside non-player world. It's the rage and everybody's using it and it it does have a ton of value. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm someone that likes analytics, but on the flip side too, as a player on the court, how much do you think about those things or need them or want to hear about the analytics rather than just you want to play?
0: The only thing that I would want to hear from my perspective, if it was like just a glaring thing where it's like, Mike, if you do this, it's super effective. And if you do this, like you're trash. So do more of the good thing and do less of the bad thing. That would be the only time it would
2: make a difference to me. Okay. Mike, overrated, underrated. Being low or in a defensive stance when you're on the perimeter, when if it's a switch or you got to do a pick and roll coverage, being the good old traditional low, wide in a stance. I'm going to go,
0: you know what? I'm going to go underrated on that. I think for me, for being a big guy defending on the perimeter, if I'm not low, I just get crushed. So being in that stance, like really helps me. And I think, you know, it was one of those things like last year, it was like, Hey, you know, I got to defend these guys. I got to figure out a way to do that. So getting my butt
2: down and, and moving
0: my feet was something that I
2: got better at over the yep. course of the year. I guess my next kind of follow up. Okay. You're low as far as like the footwork push and slide, or is it just you turn and sprint kind of, do you find something that helped you as a big with your actual footwork.
0: I would say the biggest thing that helped me was on the actual closeout is when I stopped chopping my feet. Okay, I shouldn't say stop stopped chopping my feet because I still do it sometimes, but it's, it's more of a feel it's more, you know, I'm not like running out with the intent to, I'm going to chop my feet and get low because that it allowed me to change direction quicker. And to react to what was going on instead of, you know, just worried about that part of the technique. I think that part of the technique, the chopping of the Mm. feet is highly, highly, highly overrated because it just, you're like, even from a biomechanical standpoint, like you're off balance, you can't change position as quickly. And because you don't know where to push off from doing the whole choppy chop thing. So, but yeah, no. So once I stopped doing that and really concentrated on the angle of my closeout, that was kind of the two things that made difference in my defensive abilities because a lot of the times I would just get beat, but it wasn't because I was slow or it wasn't because of this. It just I took a bad angle mm-hmm. to, you know, especially mm-hmm. closing out to the corner. It's like if you go on the baseline side of him and just give him the middle, you're screwing yourself because he can he's going to be able to attack you whatever way. Whereas like if I take a good angle and sort of essentially force him to go baseline, like I can anticipate that and then Get my feet and and my body in the right spot at the right time. Makes a lot of sense.
1: Mike, how do you find areas on defense to take a break when you're tired? Because big guys are constantly being put in defensive action from the offense. Where guards at times have opportunities to kind of sit and help side for a second, maybe catch their breath before they rotate. Where they're constantly sending you into pick and rolls and handoffs and screening. Are there ways that when you're tired, you can try to get a breath defensively?
0: I mean, if I run back really fast and then, you know, I got a couple seconds before they get set or I can kind of catch my breath, that's usually, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's usually about it. But no, uh, a lot of the times now, if I'm playing the four, they'll put the shooter, the four shooter in the corner you know, during that time. Can I really relax? Not really, but like I can use my voice and communicate and kind of direct traffic from back there. So that would be kind of the time where if my guy's in the corner, yeah, yeah, that'd, that'd be the only time I can
2: relax on defense. I'd actually like to jump on this scenario. So I'm assuming, let's say they're putting the shooter in the corner to force you to make a decision between, you know, helping on the, on the roll. Mm-hmm. What's your yeah your progression or how are you handling this situation if you know you're kind of isolated on that side with a shooter?
0: So I read the roll man would be the first read, and also the the guy defending the pick and roll and where he's at. I just don't want to be stuck in what I call no man's land, right? Where I'm like. I'm in between the two and I'm mm-hmm. not really defending anybody. So that's a good place to start. But as the action develops, just making a read and, you know, coming up a little higher. And then also understanding, like, if that pass goes to the corner, I need to go. And if I can force that guy into a drive, like I buy more time for my team and somebody else can rotate, and make a play. What kind of understanding like that is the fire sale. Of everything, where if you know if it is a last resort, like I can just try to run this guy off the line or contest the three as best I can, and and we'll live with the
1: result. All right, Mike, last one: overrated or underrated? The end of game strategy of fouling up two to potentially get the ball back.
0: Fouling up two to get the ball back.
1: Let me preface this while you're thinking, Mike, about this is something that I know is more popular in the ACB, where there's 25 seconds on the clock, you're up two, and instead of letting them take the last shot to potentially lose, teams will foul, mm-hmm. put the guy on the line to make two free throws, and then they have the ball offensively to potentially win.
0: You know, I'm gonna go overrated and I'm gonna I'm gonna be old school here okay. and I'm gonna say trust your defense. Because, you know, I will say this, if they got a very poor free throw shooter out there at at that point in the game, like, go for it. But barring that situation, I would just say, you know, let's trust our defense to get a stop and here we go. Man, we were were in this situation. It's kind of funny you bring that up against Tenerife and we were up, gosh, we were up six with 50 seconds to go and a bunch of bad stuff happened. So we're up one. They have baseline out of bounds with four seconds left, something like that. We were just like, just make it tough for them to get it in. Just, you know, get a hand up, make a contest. They're going to get one dribble and probably put a shot up. And here we go. We just messed up the switches horribly and they just passed it right to shermadini And he just dunked that thing in our face like immediately. So now we're down one. It was just like it was one of those things where you got to trust your defense in that situation because you can't I mean, over here, you can't foul with the ball out of bounds because it's uh, unsportsmanlike. So they get two shots and the ball. (laughs) I mean, you got to make it a little more difficult than that. (laughs) But at the same time, too, the idea of like, hey, we're going to trust our defense. Just sit down, get in front. They're going to run some crazy like that's the thing over here. You know, the coaches are going to have some great ATO, some great play in their pocket that they're going to throw at you and try to take advantage of. So, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> saying that and saying, trust your defense is kind of contradictory, but like, I would, I would just stick <laughs> by the players and just say, Hey man, sure, sure. Get the ball on and just make them make a play to beat you.
1: In the ACB with all the, some of the world's best coaches on ATOs in the timeout before on you're on defense. Mm-hmm. What are you guys discussing? What, what's the conversation like?
0: It depends on who's hot and like what kind of actions they tend to run. For example, in that Tenerife play, they did what I thought they were going to do. They just added a wrinkle to it. A lot of their ATOs, a lot of their baseline out-of-bounds plays are back screen with the shooter and then an exit screen for him from a big, and they just inverted that and ran it the other way, and that's why we messed up the switch the conversation is where we want to switch and what we think they're going to try to do and who's dangerous at the time. But I mean, other than that, when they come out in that formation, it's just like, you got to trust your guys with you and try to make them do something they don't want to do.
2: In that timeout, are the coaches trying to like, hone in that it's probably going to be a situation like this or are they trying to give you like it could be this this or this like two or three situations
0: no they don't they don't really play the if then game okay because they just want to be clear on exactly what they think is going to go on so they will just like i said they really focus on where we want to switch and the scheme we're going to kind of run and then as far as executing it mm-hmm. because if you get like if you get guys thinking too much like they're going to you know overanalyze everything out there and and eventually screw it up. And if you just say, hey, this is kind of the idea of what we want to do and and figure it out and have enough trust and synergy in between the guys, I think that's the best way to go. And that's been, I mean, my my experience here in the ACB is trust what we do.
1: Well, Mike, you're off the overrated, underrated hot seat. You were fantastic. I hope you don't get any hate mail from the Mike and warm up (laughs) Joe community. (laughs) (laughs) Just forward it to us. yeah. Yeah. But I liked what you said about using something else or juggling too, Mm -hmm. just to kind of keep your mind warmed up.
0: Yeah. So a little anecdote, it's kind of, I mentioned my dad in, in the little article, he teaches kids how to be gym teachers. So part of the things that he teaches is motor learning and learning of new skills. And that's why I mentioned that because I have, you know, being around him, he taught me all that stuff, but he teaches his students how to juggle And he does it for, they do little, like a lab experiment is what he calls it. And they do it for five minutes a day and they track their progress over the course of three weeks. What it does for his students is it shows them the time and like how difficult and how kind of like once you get past a certain point, it's really easy to learn a new skill. It's to show his students that whole progress of how it works. So yeah, cool. You get to learn how to juggle, you get better hand eye, you get better this, that. But I mean, even for basketball players to learn how to do that skill or for anybody, it's like you understand how a little bit every day will add up. And the progression is like so calculable from just even the sense of feel. And even if you look at the numbers, of how many catches you're averaging over the course of five minutes a day which is nothing and that whole idea behind his little little experiment that he does really just has benefits because you can apply it to so many different things
1: absolutely well Mike, this has been great thank you for your time today and for talking through all these things like we've really enjoyed this to wrap up and to finish You're someone that you could tell thinks deeply about the game of basketball and you've know you grown from someone who's been a good high school player, played in college, and now you're having success and you've found your way as a pro overseas. I'm wondering, looking back, if you would look back on your career, some advice that you would give to your younger self from the mental side of the game.
0: That's a really good question. You got to have a little F you in your game. You definitely need that part of you. You got to have the ability to kind of hit that switch and to ramp it up into another gear and just to be able to, to grind and get after it. You don't have to do that all the time. That's kind of like a training thing, but you do need to have that gear, finding a way to train that's effective and that you can repeat and that you can keep doing consistently, which is different for everybody to some degree, but just understanding that, hey, this is what I want to do. I love this game. This is where I want to be. You know, a lot of people are like, you got to make sacrifices and you got to do this. And, and I don't really like the the term sacrifice when it comes to basketball, because it's like, this is a privilege to play this game. It's a choice to play this game. Everything that comes with it is a part of it. And if you're not about it, if you're not, you know, if it's not for you, that's fine. But if you want to be successful, the blueprint is there. There's enough resources and there's enough stuff and all the other stuff that you don't read about or that you know the the sleep the diet the the real the real lifestyle kind of stuff like that's just as important it's just as inclusive and finding a system for yourself that can be repeated and that is effective and will benefit you I think is probably something that needs to be sought after by younger players
2: you so much for listening to this episode please make sure to subscribe to our sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast have a great week coaching and we'll see you next time on slapping glass
1: would we have a name yet to this <laughs> thing i have like slapping Backboard, slapping glass slapping glass that's kind of funny i like that let's well, roll <laughs> slapping glass